Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, well, good morning again. Hopefully everybody got a cup of coffee and said hi to somebody. And again, I'm so thankful to see all of you this morning. It's great to be back. I haven't been up here in a few weeks, so it's great to be here with you. And I'm very excited to go through this book and to start it, the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum. i I'm still. Just, I'm just curious. Has anyone been in a church before where you've gone through the book of Nahum? I don't. Probably not. It's probably the maybe the one of the more obscure books in the entire Bible. Um, yeah, I'm sure a lot of you walked in this morning going, "Are we studying something other than the Bible this morning?" I didn't know the book of Nahum existed. What is this book? Yeah, it is in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. Very short. You could flip over it really quick if you tried. Uh, but like we should always do before we open up God's word, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and just ask him to teach us everything out of this book. It's really such a rich, deep, deep book that God's preserved for us. And I, I think it has as much, as much, if not more, application today than it even it did at the time. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we are so grateful for your word. Thank you for the book of Nahum. Thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit that, Lord, indwells us as believers, that we have the anointing that can teach us everything out of your word. And we thank you, Lord. We lean on your spirit to teach us. We lean on your spirit, Lord, to unveil unveil the depth of your word this morning to each one of us in a very personal way. And we thank you again for this time together be with us during this study, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, as we start out, we haven't talked about this in a while, but as we start out, Nahum, we should always remember as we open up God's word to lean on the Holy Spirit as our teacher, right? It's his anointing that teaches us everything. And so as a reminder, 1 John 2, 27 through 28 But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth. Remember, Jesus said, I am the truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear at the rapture to meet us in the air, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Have confidence. You know, It's amazing just when you think about this one verse, these two verses right here. You know, when you open up God's word, it's a supernatural exercise. It's not a logical one. And you need the Holy Spirit to teach you everything out of it. You need to lean on his his spirit to teach you because he's the author. Nobody knows it better, obviously, than God, right? He's the author. He's the one that wrote it. And one of the reasons you do that is so that you can learn how to live how to serve him, what to uproot out of your life, 
to be refined as you walk through the sanctification process so that when he appears in the rapture to meet us in the air, you're not ashamed before him at his coming. That's, that's a major goal for all of us, to not be ashamed. You don't want to be in a position where all of a sudden you hear the trumpet and you're like the other five of those ten virgins, right, that had no oil in their lamp from Matthew 25 and that you're embarrassed and ashamed and that you're asking others for help before you get raptured up. You don't want to be in that spot. So you've got to be in God's words to make sure that you're abiding in him. Okay, the book of Nahum, it's God's final warning, not only to a people, but a nation. And it's kind of got a twofold application. It's God's final warning to a group of people that have completely turned their back on him. And at the same time, it's strength and confidence to God's people who were waiting for deliverance. So it has a, a twofold nature in that regard in the, throughout the whole book. It's got a very simple outline. There's only three chapters. Chapter one is the proclamation on who? Uh, God's intervention. You know, oftentimes it's amazing how in, remember in the New Testament, that in the last days there'll be scoffers going, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things have gone as they are today. And, and the logic there in people with that mindset is that God does not intervene in man's affairs. That's the logic. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the, since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were. It's the same logic that they had in the flood, that God would not intervene. It's the same logic that the Assyrians had a hundred years after their entire nation repented and turned to God in the book of Jonah. It was a hundred years later, roughly, and they had this same logic. They had gone so far away from God, they just finally were, were thinking, okay, nothing's going to happen to us. We can just keep going out and doing whatever we want, and God will never intervene. But God does intervene in the affairs of men. And you see that all throughout the Bible. Now he's long-suffering. It takes a while for him to get to the point of tearing down wicked nations. Remember what he told Abram? He said, after 400 years, your descendants will return to this land. The sin of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, he gave them 400 years to repent and get right before he judged them by bringing his people into the promised land. So it's God's intervention. It's disaster for his enemies and deliverance for his people. Chapter 2 is the description of how it's going to happen by invasion. Chapter 2, the Lord even declares what the people that invade will be wearing. It's, he's so detailed. It's a day of looting, and the city will become a den of lions. Chapter 3 is the explanation as to why is God doing this. It's because the Assyrians had become inhumane to the point where they had totally turned their back on God. It was conquest by force and corruption by finance. They were, they were greedy and hungry. Okay, in John 7, verse 50, Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Now clearly, oh, in, in verse 53, and every man went unto his own house. Clearly, whoever is speaking to Jesus here did not know the Bible because there are at least two prophets out of the Galilee, Jonah and Nahum. Both came out of Galilee. Both were commissioned to prophesy over Nineveh. So this, whoever this is speaking to Jesus had not studied their Old Testament. 
And isn't that amazing? That's religion talking to Jesus. And it's amazing how religion sits around and tells the Lord, this didn't happen. No, you can't do this. No, this isn't right. And, and they act like they know. You know, I mean, they're speaking to the creator of the universe, and they're telling him, what are you talking about? No one's a riot. No prophet's out of Galilee. Jonah and Nahum both, and they both were commissioned to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Jonah, Jonah prophesied over Nineveh, and the entire nation repented and turned to the Lord. And Nahum was approximately 100 to 150 years after Jonah. I've got a timeline in here for you. There were 10 miracles in the book of Jonah. When you study that little book, 10 miracles. And the greatest one was not Jonah being swallowed by a well, dying, being resurrected, and then following his calling. And the greatest miracle, frankly, was the entire wicked city of Nineveh, from the king all the way down to the least, turning to God and putting on sackcloth and ashes. It's estimated at that time there were probably just over a million people that repented and turned to God simply by Jonah's preaching in the city. It's one of the greatest revivals in the entire book of God's word. It's one of the greatest. Uh, Matthew 12, verse 40, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the well's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, Jesus compares what Jonah did to what he will do. So that's one clue to know that Jonah obviously had to die. Just as Jonah did, so I must do. So Jonah gets swallowed by this well. It's my suspicion and conclusion just from Jesus making that statement that Jonah actually died. You know, he didn't sit in the belly of the well like in Pinocchio, uh, grilling fish, and, and you see the rib cage around him. And he's just hanging out in this real shallow water and, and waiting to get spit up. No, he probably died, and he probably looked like death when he was resurrected. When you, when you take a body and you submerge it in water for three days, it would be pale, it, ghostly pale. I mean, so think about when he was spit up, he probably, he probably looked like the walking dead. I mean, he was probably ghostly pale. His hair was probably very thin. He was probably very malnourished. Um, and just, he probably looked horrible, which fit a little bit of the message he had to take to the, Nineveh, the people of Nineveh. And so Jonah, he probably died. He had a very difficult calling. Nineveh was a tyrannical nation that despised Israel. They were very brutal uh, to anyone they conquered. They were brutal, brutal people. They would often line the roads with their enemies' bodies impaled just to send a message to other nations. So they would conquer a people. They were savages, barbarians. They would they would do horrible things to them and leave their bodies as a message for other nations to not go against them. Jonah's message from God was very brief. It was eight words to the point, and his message specifically didn't even offer a solution. It's in Jonah 3, verse 3. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey, and Jonah began, in verse 4, to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So that's Jonah's prophecy. Eight words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words. Very simple. Now, if you remember, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Remember, he argues with the Lord. Okay, if I go do this, God, you're going to forgive them. 
you're going to, you're going, they're going to repent. They're going to be saved. They're going to be forgiven and they'll be restored. And look at all this, these horrible things they've done to your people, the nation of Israel. Look at this. That is not fair. And I think that you should just rain hellstones and fire from heaven on them and wipe them out as a people. You know, that was Jonah's perspective. And God is sitting there going, well, wait a minute. I've created them in my image just as you. I'm going to send my son to die for them just as you. I have a place for them in eternity just as you. You need to have an eternal perspective. Yes, they've done some wicked things and they will pay for that. But I want them in my kingdom still. And so God obviously forgives them when they repent. Okay, there was no, from Jonah specifically, there was no call to repentance or even an offering of grace from God but the city made a move solely based on God's character. And you can see this in Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of that evil that I thought to do unto them. So God's saying, if the nation, if I make a declaration to tear down this nation and that nation repent of their evil, then I will repent and not full follow through with that judgment. Okay, and at what in, in what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. And that actually, you see that all through the nation of Israel throughout the Bible, because God speaks to plant them and to do good for them they don't obey his word, and what happens? They end up going into the 70-year captivity to Babylon. They end up later, after Jesus' death, 38 years later, the Romans come in and ransack the temple and destroy Jerusalem, and the diaspora occurs. And his Israelites were scattered all over the world for the better part of 2,000 years until they were regathered on May 14th of 1948. And they've been regathered since then, continuing to be regathered, I should say. Okay, there is a lot to learn about the prophetic, though, from this event with Jonah. So Jonah's prophecy, seemingly, it never came to pass. And as I was studying this, I was thinking, you know, or did it? You know, yet 40 days from when? Jonah never declared from when. So there's, there's one hint. He never said 40 days from me speaking. He just said, yet 40 days. So there's, there's one clue. The other thing, at the very last word of his prophecy, shall be overthrown, in Hebrew, it means to turn, overthrow is one application, overturn, turn about, transform, to change oneself, or to transform oneself. So you almost could look at Jonah's prophecy as having a dual fulfillment. One, yes, yet 40 days, and they will be overthrown, but a different, a different marker from 40 days from when. The other is, they turned oneself, yet 40 days, and you shall turn yourself. And that entire city, that whole nation of Nineveh, that city of Nineveh, did, in fact, turn to the Lord. Again, it's one of the greatest revivals in the Bible. Okay, now we don't know if this is true or not, but for Nahum, there is a small fishing village on the northern uh, part of the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. Uh, it's Kafir Nahum, and it literally means village of Nahum. That's what Kafir and Nahum, that's where we get in our English the name Capernaum. It's the village of Nahum, and we don't know if it's the same Nahum that, that we are studying today. It could be a different Nahum, but it's an interesting thought. These are some pictures on the northern Sea of Galilee, the northern part, 
there is a national park. Uh, the national park is Kafir uh, Nahum National Park. The picture on the left is a view from one of the monuments looking out onto the Sea of Galilee. The picture next to it with the church building, there's some really, really old church buildings there. And if you go and Google this, you can look inside and see all kinds of, of paintings of the apostles and all kinds of people. You probably can't read what's on the rock, but on this stone, actually at the National Park, it shows out, it tracks the gospel trail. So from, from where Jesus started in Galilee all the way up to Capernaum, going around the Sea of, the sea of Galilee there. So how far he traveled and where he stopped. The picture on the right, if you've ever been to a, like a wildlife refuge or a national park and you're walking around the trails and you see kind of a wooden post with a white picture of, of the trail or, hey, here's the kind of bird species is here. Look for these kind of animals, anything like that. Well, the cool thing there is there's a picture of where Jesus called Simon, Peter, and Andrew out of the boat to come and follow him. That's what that picture is, re is representing and it quotes the Gospel of Matthew where he does it. If you can see it, that's Jesus on the shore and Andrew and Simon, Peter in the boat where Jesus is calling them out. So walking around the national parks there it has quite a different flavor than here in the U.S. where you just get bird species and, and things like that. Nahum delivers a prophetic message to the people in Nineveh, but he's, he may have been from that area. So these people in Nineveh, they were the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the people in Nineveh that completely repented and turned to God about 100 to 150 years before. So think about that. They were roughly three generations removed from the entire city repenting and turning to God. So think about you right now as you get older, your great-grandchildren having nothing to do with Jesus and wanting no part of your Christian experience and what you did in your life. Just imagine that. That's what this city went through in that short of a time. Now, think about three generations ago for us as Americans. You could even think less than that. Think two generations ago. Think about the generation that fought World War II to where we are today. My grandfather fought in the Pacific Campaign. And you look around at the, the people that this nation had rise up during that time to go defend the world and to fight for Israel and think about if that were happening today, what would the response be? You know, the people, the, the people that are raising up in this nation right now, we have gone so far astray. It's only been 70 years. And think about that. You can barely find people that call themselves Christians today. I think last time I saw a stat on LifeWay Research, back in that generation, something around 78% of people in the United States called themselves and referred to themselves as Christians Today, it's less than 30, and of that 30, less than a third, so less than 10%, actually believe Jesus is the only way to salvation and that he's our Messiah. That's how far gone we, we, have, we have gone as a nation. And that's why I'm saying a lot of this book, it's a final warning to Nineveh, but we need to look at it as the United States and figure out, Lord, what are you calling us to do? Because 2 Chronicles 7.14 says that if my people will turn, humble themselves, pray and fast and repent of their evil ways, I will hear them from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. And so it's, the onus is on us, right, as God's people. It's on us. It's not on those that don't know him. It's on those of us 
to turn to him, repent, and get right with the Lord, and he will heal our land. That's, that's a mission for you and I as his people. Now, when you look at Nineveh, it's kind of in the, it's in modern-day Iraq. You can see the pen there just on the northern portion of Iraq. We'll zoom in in a second. The two pictures next to the map, the, the Assyrians, like I said, were very brutal. They, when they would capture the people, they would behead them. They would impale their heads on stakes, lining roads, all kinds of things. These are old, old engravings showing that. The one on the left is they captured some slaves and they had some swords up there getting ready to cut off their head. The one on the right is an Assyrian king over the people he's conquered. And if you look closely, the body on the very bottom doesn't have a head. And so it's, you can see them even in those pictures showing that. Okay, the Assyrian Empire, it stretched all the way from modern day Iran, that's Elam in the Bible, all the way to Egypt. So that's how big the Assyrian Empire was in the Middle East. It covered a lot of territory. And if you zoom in on the picture on the right, in modern day, in Iraq, you have Babylon, Baghdad, and the modern city of Mosul. And on the opposite side of the river is Nineveh. That's where the ancient city of Nineveh was. And so they all, it's kind of amazing, all three of those major cities in Iraq followed the river of, of Euphrates, right? They were all built along that river, the great river Euphrates. Okay, Nineveh is founded by Nimrod in, back, all the way back in Genesis 10, verses 11 and 12. And then it's got a storied history of kings. It's interesting that the first world dictator was an Assyrian, Nimrod, and the last world dictator is referred to as an Assyrian. Now, on a map today, you can't find Assyria, right? It's nowhere on a map today. But Micah 5 and Isaiah 10, the Lord speaks of the Assyrian, speaking of the Antichrist. The Assyri when the Assyrian comes into your land, he's speaking to Israel in Micah 5 and Isaiah 10. But you can't find Assyria on a map, so you can't really track that down. It's, you saw all the land that it covered. And so it's just interesting that the Lord has that title for him. Now, if you look at these kings, they had, Nineveh had a very storied history of kings. Hammurabi in 1792 to 1750, Shamazar III in 859 to 824, Ahurdan III from 772 to 754 BC. That's the king of Nineveh who repented at the preaching of Jonah, was that guy. Uh, Tiglath-Pilzer III, 745 to 727 BC, Shalmaneser V, from 727 to 722 BC, he's the one that besieged Samaria and conquered the northern kingdom after Solomon died. So if you remember after Solomon's death, David reigns for a while. Well, after David, the, the nation of Israel splits into the northern and southern kingdom and Samaria is in the north. They had the whole civil war. But that's the king of Assyria that conquered the northern kingdom, Okay just to put, put it in perspective. So all these years later, then you get Sennacherib in 705 to 681 BC. He's the Assyrian king that tried to attack Judah when one angel in one night killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And that's in Isaiah 37, 36 through 38, and 2 Kings 19, 32 through 36. Let's look at that. The Lord had declared that he would defend Jerusalem because of his servant David. Okay, God made that promise in 2 Kings 19. Here's where it starts. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city nor shoot an arrow there nor come before it with shield 
nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into the city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Okay, so God made a promise, and that's what Sennacherib tried to do. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred fourscore and five thousand. That's 185,000 soldiers. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Now, it doesn't mean that there are only 185,000 soldiers and they were all dead. What likely, when you get into the, the Hebrew behind this, it means that the ones that were attacked by the angel were all dead. And so likely what happened is the angel went through and maybe the angel slew every other soldier or something so that when the ones that were spared woke up, they'd look around them and see the dead soldiers and then they would have a message to go back to Assyria with of, of uh, don't go mess with Israel or else. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. <laughs> I bet he did. He probably left in a hurry. Well, after uh, Sennacherib, there's two, two more kings and it ends, Nineveh is no longer a city right around 612 BC or so. So a chronological overview of Nineveh, the rise to power. So when Nimrod founded it early on, it really rose to power in 903 BC, the city. Okay, the rise of Nineveh to power is around 903 BC. The warning of Jonah about 150 years later in 759 BC. The destruction of the northern kingdom in Israel in 722 BC. The failed invasion of Sennacherib was about 709 BC. The prophecy of Nahum around 663 and then the destruction of Assyria, not quite 40 years later in 625 BC. Now you have to be careful with some of these dates because it's, it's obviously it's hard to track down to the year. But when, in the research I did, that's the best kind of timing I could find of Nineveh. Nineveh was a very large city. It was protected by both outer and inner walls, just like Babylon. Okay, the inner wall was 50 feet wide and over 100 feet high. So it's a big wall. Three chariots could line up and race on top of the wall. And they did that a lot. The same with Babylon. It was located on the east bank of the Tigris River, approximately 550 miles from Samaria, the northern kingdom's capital. So Jonah probably spent about an, a month walking to Nineveh, okay, to walk about 550 miles. It probably took him about 30 days or a little over that, to walk to Nineveh. But there's a, a picture of how it would look back in ancient times. And those are the ruins of the walls they found. It was destroyed so much and buried so, so much that when Alexander the Great walked through there, he just walked right over the city and didn't even realize it ever existed. That's how much God had destroyed and wiped out the city. Nineveh had over 1,200 towers on the walls, each about 200 feet high along the walls for protection. The city was somewhere between 50 to 70 miles in circumference, so around the border. If you added up all the borders, probably about 50 to 70 miles because Jonah in chapter 3, verse 3, spent a three days journey walking around the city. Okay, so just roughly, if you think he could walk maybe 15 to 20 miles a day, it'd be about that from a circumference standpoint. It had over 600,000 people that were supported by crops grown within the city walls. 
So they were, they were kind of a self-sustaining city, so to speak. They had community farms, and they grew crops and all kinds of stuff within the city. Manasseh paid tribute to the Assyrians during his reign. If you remember, he respected the Assyrians more than he valued and respected God. And so he paid tribute to the evil dictators that were ruling the earth and not paying homage to the Messiah, to the Lord, to Yahweh. Okay, Nineveh was the capital of a dominant world power. And so Nahum's declaration of their destruction is a big deal. Okay, this is, this is a dominant world power that runs the world's economy, that's stretching across the known world at that time in the Middle East. And God's saying, nope, they will never, that city is going to be destroyed and will never again be a city. I mean, it'd be very, it'd be very likened today for the Lord to say that about like Washington, D.C., for example, or New York City. It'd kind of be that level of impact. Nahum's prophecy from God was not only a declaration against Nineveh, but it was supposed to be comforting to God's people in Judah. So the Israelites were being oppressed greatly by the Assyrians. And so God's, it's a final warning to this people, but yet comforting to his people. Okay, so you can see the parallel. God right now, where we are on the prophetic timeline, and as we studied for those 13 messages this spring, God has a final warning for the earth right now, that you need to get right. You need to get with me and get right with me because time is quickly spiraling to the end. And there is coming a time very soon that he's going to call his church home and that door is going to close. And there will come a time upon the earth that will be the worst time in human history. And we spent a lot of time studying that, but God has a final warning to the earth right now. It's you've got to get right with him. And it's a warning for his people to not be caught off on surprise, to not be surprised and to not be ashamed when he returns, but it's also a warning to those that don't know him. And so I'm just imploring you, if you have a friend, a family member, anyone in your life that does not know Jesus, you need to witness to them and speak up. And you can do that in a lot of ways. It doesn't have to be verbally. Uh, Live a life for him and people will see it. I'm, I'm telling you, I've seen it in my own life growing up and early on after college. If you just live for him and go about your business in a godly manner, people notice and they will know that something's different. And the, the part of them that's wired to be eternal will be drawn to that. It will. So don't, don't feel like you've got to go around, you know, wearing a, a cardboard vest or something on the corner and write, Jesus is coming and, and look all crazy. You, know, you don't have to do that. If, you, if you're called to do that, great. We'll bring you a hamburger or something. But if, you're, if, if you just live a life for the Lord, you can do that also. And if you get the opportunity, then speak up. A lot of times, if you just pray for someone, eventually they will come and start asking you questions. Let the Holy Spirit open that door and just be led by the Spirit in how you're walking out your life. Because there is a final warning to the people. Okay, so with all that said, let's dive into Nahum, chapter 1, verse 1. That was just the introduction. But the burn of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. So the reference to Elkishite occurs only once in the entire Bible, and it's right here. It's frankly, it's a bit of a mystery. Uh, the, the language of it would have you believe that Nahum was from Elkosh, uh, and Elkishite, right, would be from Elkosh. And it's only described to Nahum. So 
You can search this. I spent a lot of time looking this up and digging into, into old books and things. Nobody really knows. That's the bottom line. Uh, there's lots of theories out there. One theory was maybe Capernaum was named Elkosh before it was named Capernaum. We don't know. Um, but if somebody finds a, a, something that's credible or uh, a eureka, please let me know if you go and do some research on that. But God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Okay, the book starts out and it just hits you right out of the gate. Okay, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. You do not want to be in a position where you're getting a letter or a message from God that he is telling you he's furious with you. That's not a great place to be. Okay, jealous appears 19 times in the Bible. The word jealous, if you go look it up. Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, for the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Now, he's not jealous in terms of, man, I really wish I had what you have. That's not the, we use that word in a totally different context today. He is jealous for your affection. He is jealous for you and I to be solely committed to him and living our lives dedicated in a life of service to him. That's what he's jealous for. So when you give your affection elsewhere in the world to anything, fill in the blank, to a job, a relationship that's not with him, um, something material, an activity, uh, something, some, a home, anything else, just fill in the blank for anything you can think of today in the society we live in. He is jealous for that because he wants all of you. He wants to be number one on a list of one. And then as Jesus declared, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added to you. All. He didn't say some, he said all. So he will take care of it from there. You've just got to put him first. So jealousy, jealous, it appears 19 times. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, us as in the church, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So when, when he says in verse 2 here, the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. You and I are not appointed to that wrath. He reserves it for whom? His enemies. Now, you may have correction from God. You may go through a period in your life where he is chastening you, he's correcting you, he's wanting to sanctify you, he's wanting to burn away something in your life that shouldn't be there. That's not his wrath. That's a loving father correcting a child. Okay, what kind of father lets his child run off and do anything without correcting him? You know, not a great one. And so don't, you've got to separate those two things that his correction is loving. His wrath is out of anger and displeasure, and it's on a people that have not accepted him. Two totally different things. Okay, in verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. Now, you see that all through the Bible. I'm sure a lot of you are sitting here and you, and you watch what's going on with the World Economic Forum, what's going on and what's been happening in the world since 2020, what's going on with uh, the children all over the world, uh, trafficking, whatever it is, abortion, and you're sitting there going, Lord, can we speed up this brimstone and fire and judgment and what Peter said of the earth will melt with a fervent heat? Can we get that on, on the road? But he is slow to anger and we should be too. 
And you have to realize from Romans that vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. It's not up to you and I to go out and take vengeance on a world that is rejecting Christ. It's our job to pray for them and to walk and to be a light to the world. Okay, he's slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now, I didn't put this in your notes, but in verse three, he will have his way in the whirlwind. You can find this in a lot of the Old Testament prophets, Obadiah, Joel, uh, the Lord comes in a whirlwind at the end to Armageddon. So he will have his way in a whirlwind. The Lord, these first few verses in chapter one are looking way beyond the destruction of Nineveh. They're looking to when Jesus returns on the earth the second time. Okay, remember the next time he shows up, we meet him in the air. He doesn't come to earth. We meet him in the air. The next time then he lays foot on the earth and vanquishes his enemies at the battle of Armageddon at Mount Megiddo. Okay, so the Lord right here in verse three is looking beyond that. In verse four in Nahum, he rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and dryeth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. See, he's looking way beyond Assyria and Nineveh. Bashan, remember Jesus, first person singular from the cross in Psalms 22, the bulls of Bashan compass me about. Okay, that, that psalm, Psalm 22, is Jesus dictated first person singular from the cross. It starts out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Okay, and it goes all the way down and you learn some things that he says from the cross that are not in the gospels. And one of them is that the bulls of Bashan, he was seen behind our physical reality to the spiritual side. He was seeing those demonic spirits and fallen angels surrounding him on the cross thinking they were victorious. The bulls of Bashan had compassed me. Okay, so you can go study that if you want to. But look at Zephaniah chapter two, verses 13 through 15. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria and will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. And flocks shall lie down in the midst of her, all the beasts of the nations, both the both the cornet and the bittern shall lodge in the upper lentils of it. Their voice shall sing in the widows, windows, sorry, the text is really small back there. Desolation shall be in the thresholds for he shall uncover the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly. Now, hang on to that word. What was Assyria's and Nineveh's, one of their mistakes? They dwelt carelessly. Okay, in the, in the Gog and Magog war in Ezekiel 28 and 29, God also has a judgment on those that stand by and watch Russia try to lead this invasion of Israel because he has a judgment not only on them on the mountains of, of Judah, but in that passage, he also says, and those that dwell carelessly in the isles, in the isles as in offshore. So it may be North America, it may be the United States, it may be South America, but those that dwell carelessly that said in her heart, I am and there is none beside me. Boy, that sounds a lot like what Babylon says, the harlot, the mystery Babylon in Revelation. Uh, I am a queen and, and don't sit a widow. And she's talking back to Israel. But I, there is none beside me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down, to lie down in? Everyone that passeth by her shall hiss and wag his hand. So Zephaniah saw this happening, just like Nahum. He was given the same prophecy. In verse five here, 
The mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. So we have to recognize that God is the moral ruler of the universe. Okay, he sets the standard, not you and I. So when he sets the standard, you can either submit and get into that standard and conform to it or be left out and, and not hung out to dry. But if you don't have Jesus, you are. Uh, so get to know Jesus. But if you don't conform to that standard, don't expect everything to go according to your plan. Okay, God has, God has a call on your life if you're in him. He saved you for a purpose. So one of the greatest journeys you can go on in your life is to figure out what that purpose is and submit to it and get conformed to his standard. Look at Psalms 97 verses four through six. His lightnings enlightened the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. See, you can find this language kind of all throughout the Bible that the mountains quake at him, the hills melt at his presence. They're going to melt like wax. Look in Micah 1, verses 3 through 4. Behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains shall be molten under him. This is not just poetic language. Jesus is going to melt every hill and mountain when he returns. And one of the reasons, I think, is because when he sets up the kingdom for a thousand years, it's up on a very high mountain where every nation can see it. That may be one of the reasons. I'm not sure, but it's just speculation. Okay, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. Look at Amos 9, verse 13. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and the hills shall melt. Do you see how the Lord confirms this over and over and over? Nahum, Psalms, Micah, Amos. Okay, look at Galatians 4, verse 3. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. See, look at the very, at the very top there. The mountains shall quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. The elements of the world, if you track this down in the Bible, it always speaks of bondage. So the world, yea, the world and them that dwell therein being melted, melting away. If you read Galatians, it talks about how we were under bondage under the elements of the world. It only shows up four times in the Bible and all four times when the Lord uses elements, he speaks of bondage and being res us being rescued from it. Look at 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12. That's what he means when he says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away and a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The elements. So when that day comes, what, what is God melting away? He's melting away the bondage of the world that you and I have been under for so long. Okay, think about it as that's one application. In verse 6 here, who can stand before his indignation and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. 
Okay, the earth dwellers, now when you go back and you think about that in verse 5, all that dwell therein. Okay, remember the earth dwellers in Revelation? You don't want to be an earth dweller. Those that, those that make their home the earth and put all of their stake in the earth, they don't end up well in Revelation. You don't want to do that. You don't want to be an earth dweller. Okay, the earth dwellers in, in Revelation ask this same question as the recipients of his wrath. In Revelation 6, 15 through 16, remember they say, the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and the rocks and the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Now, isn't it amazing that in the end times in the seven-year tribulation, the kings being judged in the earth, they even know where the wrath is coming from. It's coming from the wrath of the lamb. And they're asking for rocks to fall on them and kill them instead of repenting and getting right with Jesus. That's how stubborn they are. I just, I, it's hard to imagine that. <clears throat> in verse seven here, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Remember Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of whose trouble? Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. See, the time of trouble is not reserved for us. It's the time of Israel's trouble. It, God is driving them to the brink of extinction so that from Hosea 5.15, they have to confess they missed him the first time and repent, and then he returns. That's the, one of the, that's the prerequisite to Jesus returning is Hosea 5.15, that he will push them to the brink and he will, go, he will sit until they repent and then he'll show up. And he's speaking of Israel there. You can track that down. In verse eight, but with an overthrowing flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. It's amazing. God is saying, hey, you people of Nineveh, what are you imagining against me? What are, what are you imagining that you're going to do against me as the one that spoke you into existence? And this is exactly what God says in Psalms 2, 1 through 4. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? It's vain to think you can do anything against God. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. That's the Lord's response to these people. He shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Now, if you track down Psalms chapter two, that entire Psalm is a dialogue between the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you can track down which, one, which member of the Trinity is speaking and when in Psalms 2. It's, it's fascinating. Okay, in verse 10 here. For while they be folded together as thorns and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. You know, if you shot fireworks out on Independence Day last week, if you were out in a dry field, you probably had some fires show up. Dry stubble burns very fast. And it doesn't take much to catch fire. Okay, fully dry stubble. Now remember in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, 
if you're in Christ, when you're at the Bema seat of Jesus, and it's, when it's all said and done, the foundation you laid was the foundation of Christ, and then everything, that's your salvation, everything you did in your life is built on that foundation. And when you stand before Jesus, it is in two categories, wood, hay, stubble, or gold, silver, precious stones. And it's all tested by fire. And if, you, if you're not familiar with that, go read that chapter and track that down. Your salvation is not, is, is not at all what is on trial there. It's what you did with it. And so it's tested by fire. If it's wood, hay, stubble, it burns away. If it's gold, silver, precious stones, that is part of your inheritance and what you get to lay at the feet of Jesus in Revelation 4 and 5 when we're in the throne room of the universe. Okay, there's one in verse 11 here in Nahum. There's one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. See, now God is turning to encourage his people. Though I've afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. The judgment on Nineveh and the world of what we're looking at ahead, it's not only a judgment against them, but it should be comforting to you and I. This, they don't win in the end. You and I get to celebrate a millennial reign with the creator of the universe, Jesus in the flesh, ruling and reigning on the earth from Jerusalem. He wins. They don't win. And so it should be comforting. God is declaring a judgment on these people and at the same time telling you and I, stay strong, hold fast, press on because I'm coming quickly. Okay, so you should be encouraged by that when you study God's word. Studying prophecy and what's happening at the end, it should not incite fear. It should not make you uncomfortable. It should encourage you. It should make you realize, I have a lot to live for, and I don't have a lot of time to live for it. So get right with the Lord. Get your life on the right track. Surrender to him and press on. Okay, it's a comfort to us. In Nahum's day, it was a comfort to Israel. He's not going to afflict them anymore. And the same could be true, again, like I said, during the millennium for us in the time of trouble. In verse 13 here, For now will I break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. So all of their idols that they had, God's going to tear them down. And I will make thy grave for thou art vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. And from that day forward, Nineveh and Assyria had nothing to do with Israel when God make that, made that declaration. Okay, the last verse of chapter 1, verse 15 here. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. Okay, that's a piece of the armor of God from Ephesians 6, 14 through 15. Look at those two verses. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So Jesus is going to come back. Okay, he's the prince of peace. He's going to usher in peace. He's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. 
in Zechariah 14, and after the war of Armageddon, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives, and it's going to cleave and create this valley so that from the millennial temple, a river can go out through the east, through that mountain, the Mount of Olives. Okay, he's going to do that. And those feet will finally bring and usher peace into the world. A true peace, not a false peace. Not a peace of, well, everything's fine if I can just make it to Monday. No, everything's fine for the next thousand years and you better worship him and you will have the greatest thousand years on the earth you've ever had because he will be ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, from the throne of David as promised to Mary in Luke and all over the Bible. He's gonna bring peace. I think if you track this down in the Old Testament, you can actually find Jesus wearing every piece of the armor from Ephesians 6, if you track it down. Now you see him with the sword of the spirit, obviously in Joshua 5. Remember Joshua comes to him as a centurion and Joshua says, hey, are you for us or our enemy? And he, what does Jesus say? Neither. He says, nay, but as the captain of the Lord's host, I have come. Take off your shoes, you're on hallowed ground. And he's holding what? He's holding a sword stuck in the ground. And he's standing there. So he's got the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Joshua immediately takes off his shoes. And then you know the rest of the story. Jesus is the one that wins and fights the battle at Jericho, not Joshua. Joshua, all he does is he does what God says to do. Jesus goes forward and fights and conquers that stronghold. Remember everything that happened in that battle at Jericho was totally contrary to the Old Testament. The Levites were not supposed to go to war, and yet they led the procession. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't supposed to go to war, and yet they're carrying it. They weren't supposed to do anything the seventh day, and yet they did seven times more than they were supposed to. I mean, everything. And Jesus fights the battle. It's like he took the Old Testament and just turned it upside down. And he said, hey, I'm going to go conquer this. This thing puts you in bondage. There's no life in the law, right? That's what you learn in Romans. The law only points you to death and that you are in need of a savior. Jesus then fulfills it. And you see him, I think if you track this down, you can find him wearing every piece of the armor throughout the Old Testament from Ephesians 6. So it's not something that you and I just do, right? Something that Jesus did and you and I are to continue to do because we need to fortify and gird ourselves up with him. That's, that's the key. Okay, so... To close out chapter one here, those feet that bring peace. You know, we've, we went through a whole series for 13 weeks on studying prophecy and looking at, at modern headlines and in the culture and what's going on in the world through the lens of the Bible. And the call for all of us, if you're in Jesus, is to be watchful. That's the call. Because the signs of Jesus's return, they are everywhere. And those feet that bring peace that Nahum spoke about, they're going to step on that Mount of Olives again soon. And time is very short. Even if, even if it doesn't happen in your lifetime, how many years do you think you have left? Just think about that. You, you could go home to be with the Lord at any second. We are not promised tomorrow. Jesus said, worry about today. Tomorrow has enough trouble on its own. So worry about today. And not in a worry like to be anxious, but put your thoughts and affection and what are you doing today for the Lord? And you need to live like that. And we need to be watchful. Okay, from Mark, Matthew 24, 42, Matthew 25, 13, Mark 13, 33, 
Luke 21, 36 and Mark 13, 37, Jesus tells us over and over and over to watch, to be watchful. And remember from Luke 21, when you see all of these things begin to pass, look up for your redemption draws nigh. He's telling us to be watchful. We've got to rightly divide the return of Jesus to gather his church and his return to earth in power. Two totally separate events that have different purposes and involve different people. Okay, the rapture is to gather us to him. We return with him in Revelation 19 in power to set up the millennium. So we've got to watch. And to do that, you've got to be in the, in the word of God. So before we close in prayer, if you are watching this, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, it is so simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is so, so simple. And praise God, he made it simple. And once you're saved, once you're born again, like Jesus said in John 3, you can never be unborn. How can one be born and then be unborn? You can't, right? No matter what I wanted to do, I could never go back and not be a child of Carrie and Richard Freeman of Lawton, Oklahoma. I couldn't do it. And when you are born again and you're a child of the king, it doesn't matter. It's not your job to hold on to your salvation. He paid for it all. If you have to add to it, then his work on the cross wasn't finished. It's his work on the cross plus you doing something. And that's not the truth. Once you're born again, you are forever sealed for the day of redemption. You cannot lose it. You're born again. But you then have a standard to live up to. You have a call on your life. You have to get right with the Lord. And all those things that enchained you before you were born again, you now have the indwelling Holy Spirit and the strength by him to overcome those and to break them off. That's the key. You know, a lot of people try to go to those that are addicted to something or something's going on in their lives. Well, you just need to repent and then get saved. That's the wrong order. <laughs> you need to get saved so you can repent and break off those chains. Okay, you can't break those chains off without the Holy Spirit. You need him to be in your life and to indwell in you so you are the temple of God. And then from Isaiah 1:18, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That's what happens. So if you need anything, please reach out to us. There's our email. And we'll pick up chapter two next week in Nahum. We'll close in prayer here. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have a warning to this earth right now. And all of us can take up your word and carry that warning around that there is a day coming that we will hear the sound of a trumpet, the voice crying out to us to come up hither and to meet you in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, just as you declare in 1 Thessalonians 4. And we thank you for the promise of our blessed hope that Lord, as we see all of this being set up, it is just that it's a setup and as the beast system is being set up, Lord, let us have a sense of urgency that God, the time is at hand. We've got to live for you because it is short. And Lord, we thank you for the promise that we are not appointed to your wrath. We thank you 
that you saved us for a purpose and on purpose. So please, Lord, be with us, draw us near to you, teach us everything and be with us as we go out of this place. It is in your precious, matchless name, Jesus, we pray all of these things. Amen.